Hey there, how you doing? My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church here in Vancouver, Washington. What you're about to hear is a message from our Sunday morning gathering, and we hope it encourages and inspires you on your journey to be more like Christ. For more information about 6-8 Church, visit 6-8church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8 church.com. We're using a book to kind of guide us in the thinking, but we're going to be using a lot, a lot of scripture on Sundays as well as throughout the week in our devotionals. But part of our goal is to give us first confidence in our faith. We want to be able to feel confident in the faith that we are walking and living in. That is, I would, I would say, the primary goal because our faith, Christianity, is under attack in our society. It has been for quite some time. Um, so we want to be able to live and believe confidently in what we believe, know that there are reasons for our faith. But at the same time, we want to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ when somebody asks us. It would be very easy for us to take this information and become argumentative and start to try to prove our point with people who disagree with us. And, and, and try to debate the people in our lives and just show them that we're actually, we actually are smarter than them and they just need to submit to our wisdom. And so we have, I have a little, a little thing that I would like you to, uh, to listen to that I probably should have put on a slide and we should read out loud. Maybe we'll do that next week. But I, I want to, almost as like you were going to, as you were going to, you know, in a court, raise your right hand. I won't make anyone do that. But I will not use this information to argue with non-believers in an attempt to elevate myself or my faith. I receive this information for the building up of my faith and so that I may be able to have a loving dialogue with the skeptics God has placed in my life. I understand it is not my job to argue someone into the faith, but to merely be ready to give a reason for the hope that I have in Christ. So if you are here and you're starting this journey with us this morning, that's the agreement for this series. If you violate the terms of that agreement, I may come after you <clears throat> hard. And I think it's very important that we walk humbly in our faith because that's exactly what Jesus did. Now this week we're going to be dealing with, the, with this question of exclusivity. We're going to deal with that a lot. We're going to deal with a lot of the scriptures this coming week that talk about Jesus being the only way. John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus talked about being the door and the gate. He did not live, leave room for, for other entrances into the kingdom. He, Jesus, is the only entrance. And a lot of people have had a problem with that statement that, that why, would, why would there be only one entrance? Why is there only one way? Can't there be many ways to God? To get started with that, I want to start where we were just reading, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. I'd like to read that and just invite you to listen. We'll pick out some of these verses as we go along. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we spend time together in your word and listening from the wisdom of uh, uh, Pastor Keller in New York and his experience, that you help us to be able to, to uh, train our minds to, to think in a way that is humble, that is not proud, that is not boastful, 
but that is also confident in the reasons that we have in our faith. But Father, most importantly, I pray not only that, that we would have the ideology of Christianity, but that these ideas would be so rooted in our lives that, that it would change how we live day in, day out, that people would see Christ and the application in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear friends, this is John, the Apostle John writing. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We were saying about that this morning. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Really good. If you have never read First John, you should go read that this afternoon. It's a really, really good book. Really great letter. We did a series on this uh, several years ago, and we talked about how John, we called him Papa John because he was pretty old at the time that he wrote this. He was well you know, into a grandfather kind of age, so we're just talking about Papa John and his perspective and wisdom that he had on life. And so Papa John, when he wrote this, was, was addressing some of the Gnostic problems. There was a Gnostic heresy that was starting to creep into Christianity in the early days of the church, and he was writing to address some of those concerns with, with Gnosticism. If you're not familiar with the term Gnosticism, it's in the early first and second century, this is what it meant, is that the Gnostic doctrine taught that the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity, the Demiurge, and that Christ was an emissary of the remote supreme divine being, esoteric knowledge, gnosis, the Greek word for gnosis is knowledge, Gnosticism, that's where the name comes from, esoteric knowledge of whom enabled the redemption of the human spirit. So it had to do a lot with knowledge, with, with being able to know things, with, the, with and it put a supremacy on knowledge, and this will make sense in a second. It had to do with, with escaping your body, 
and finding the perfect spirit. You were looking inward to find truth and the God within. A lot of this will start to sound familiar. To escape the world to the perfect spiritual place. To move towards perfection by finding hidden spiritual knowledge. To move past the inferior God to find the real God beyond, ultimately leading to the idea that you are a God. We also are dealing with what Mark Sayers, who wrote the book called Disappearing Church, calls contemporary Gnosticism. And it has a lot of the exact same themes, although the, the outcome is a little bit different. So you're turning your body into a perfect looking body. So you're not just trying to free yourself from your flesh to find the perfect spirit. Now you're trying to perfect your body to be the perfect looking body. You're still looking inward, but you're looking inward to find the real you. We're trying to escape the mundane to find the amazing life. We're moving towards the perfect life through tips and tweaks and hacks and secrets of success, trying to self-create ourselves. We are seekers pursuing, though, fulfillment through incredible experiences and pleasure. And we're constantly urged to move past organized religion and find true spiritual, spirituality. But where with Gnosticism that John was dealing with, dealt with about eventually becoming a god, this one is just, it's all about me. And I think you could easily see that in our culture. This brings us to an important point that uh, Pastor Keller makes in the book and one that we need to deal with if we're gonna talk about exclusivity. And it's the idea that there, there can be a lot of arrogance that creeps in when you think that you have the one truth. Now this is a problem that a lot of people have had with Christianity over the years, is that how can you possibly claim to have the truth? Like how can you, as Christians, be so arrogant as to claim that you have the answers? The irony is that this is actually a very predominant view in our culture today. 65% of millennials who regularly attend churches in the United States think that good people get to heaven. Because it can't possibly be true that there's only one way. How could it possibly be true that there's only one way to eternity with the Father? And so even 65% of the millennials who regularly attend church think that there must be more than one way for good people to get to heaven. This idea is really creeping into our thinking. And I think, this is my, these are my ideas, but I think part of the reason the world is so volatile, volatile right now has to do with this combination of, of my truth and this new contemporary Gnosticism that we're dealing with and the arrogance and superiority of secularism. Now, I haven't talked a lot about secularism. It's kind of a new thing for me. I'm really starting to gain an understanding, but don't know a lot yet to share. But secularism just kind of has, deals with the separation from all religious influences. Our society right now is really trying to separate itself from any religious influence at all. We, we, don't want to be, we don't want to be shaped, molded, or formed in any way, shape, or form as a culture by religion. 
especially Christianity. This is being taught in our public schools and universities. Secularism says that our way is the right way. Religion is for the weak-minded. But then you add to secularism, to the secular, secularized way of thinking, the idea of my truth, and it gets really complicated. Because when you add my truth to it, which we've talked about, how a lot of us will cling to something, we'll call it my truth, is a really popular phrase right now. And that's just, that's just my truth, so you can't argue with it because it's my truth. And we're going to talk about relative truth in just a second. But now my truth is actually becoming the exclusive truth. So today when you disagree with someone about their way of thinking or living, you're not just disagreeing with their belief system, you're actually challenging their very identity and existence. It makes it very complicated for us to be able to share the gospel. In fact, a lot of people, including a, a, a majority of millennials within the church, don't think that we should share our faith, that all proselytizing is wrong except for when it comes to secularism and they can proselytize as much as they want. But there's a belief system that many people hold to and it's just been taught to them as the, antith the antithesis of religion, but they don't really understand that it's still a religion. Now, I'm going to talk about religion because that's a lot of what Dr. Or Pastor Keller talks about uh, in the book, is religion, and he talks about the slippery slope of religion, but we first have to define religion. And I know this is really kind of technical talk, so hang with me. I hope it all kind of connects here in a minute. I'm going to try to skip through a lot of my notes and not overwhelm you with, with uh, the nine pages that I have this morning. But um, we need to lay this foundation because by religion, we would, a lot of people would think that as Christians, we have religion, which we don't. We don't have religion. We have relationship, and that's a cliche, but it's, it's a true cliche. We have a relationship with the eternal God, not a religion. It has, however, been boiled down to and, and disseminated as religion, and it's become ineffective when it does so. But a religion is not just a set of beliefs and then going to religious services. That's not all that it entails. A religion is a set of answers to the big questions in life. So any religious system deals with the big questions like, why are we here? It deals with what is right and wrong for people to do. Religions deal with these questions. You cannot argue these, uh, you know, from, from a scientific standpoint. These, these have to do with religious backgrounds. Religions deal with what's wrong with the human race and what will fix it. And then how do we decide what is right and what is wrong? Or what is the most important thing that I should do? Whatever our answers to these questions are, are our religious answers that shows us what our religion is that we're holding to. The problem with religion is, as, as Pastor Keller explains, is that it tends to create a slippery slope in the heart that leads us to a feeling of superiority. This is why religion is actually anti-gospel. It's actually anti-Christ to be religious in this kind of a way because we should not be feeling superior 
we should be walking in the humility of Christ. And the whole goal of everything we're doing as a church is to be like Christ, to become more like Christ. But religion creates a slippery slope that leads us to feeling superior. And when you're superior, that leads to separation because you're better than other people, which leads to an unfamiliarity with people and the people that you're not, not a part of, you're unfamiliar with, which then leads to stereotypes and believing the worst about people that we just actually don't really know, which can lead to then passive or active oppression and violence. And you can see that repeated throughout history. When you feel better than other people, you start treating them differently, you separate yourself from them, and eventually you find it easy to oppress them or to be silent when they're being oppressed. This is the slippery slope of religion, and it's happening in our society. We just don't see it that way because it's not portrayed as a religion, but it's happening in a lot of different ways. But then what do we do? What do we do when we discover that religion erodes peace on earth between humans that actually can create divisiveness, it can create wars? There has a lot, a lot of murder has been done in the name of religion over the years. What do we do then when, when we discover that religion actually erodes peace on earth between people? Well, our secular society has tried to deal with it in a few ways. I want to just cover these briefly. I'm not going to get into too much detail on them, and then I'll kind of bring it to my conclusion. The first way that they deal with it is that they hope that religion is going to disappear, or they try to regulate it and control it to try to force it into the outskirts. But when countries have done this, over the, over the course of history, what has happened is it actually tends to produce the opposite results. There, you know, in Africa, where we sent missionaries, and there have been missionaries for 100 years, there are now six times more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in all of America. So in the one country in, in Nigeria, there are more Presbyterians in Ghana than in all of America. South Korea grew from 1% Christianity to 40% Christianity in the course of 100 years. And a lot of uh, sociologists believe that China is on track to do the same or to surpass that. And what happened in China when they tried to weaken it, if you read the book, you, you, you're familiar with this, but when they tried to weaken Christianity in China by sending all the missionaries out of the country, what they did was they made it more indigenous so that the people of China became the leaders of the church in China, and it actually spread faster. So when you try to regulate it or control it, you actually tend to help it thrive because Christianity in particular thrives under persecution. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, we come to this phrase. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's interesting here why we should ask ourselves the question, why does John say that we should not believe every spirit, but we should test the spirits when he's talking about false teaching and, and, and false prophets? Why, why would he say spirits when he's talking about 
false teachers? Isn't it just teaching that we're really worried about? Isn't it just the concern that, that there are people who are teaching lies and we should just pay attention to the teachers? Why does John mention spirits and testing the spirits? John Stott in his commentary on 1 John said this. He said, you mustn't make the mistake to think that religious diversity and religious views are merely intellectual or cognitive phenomena. You mustn't make the mistake to think that religious diversity and religious views are merely intellectual or cognitive phenomena. In other words, it's not the same as having a political viewpoint and a political ideology, because behind these ideas are real, actual spiritual forces that oppose Christ. There is a spiritual realm, and we're becoming more and more aware of it all the time. And a lot, of, a lot of contemporary Gnosticism is kind of obsessed with this idea through meditation to try to tap into this other world that is actually as real, if not more real, than the world that we experience right now. It's just it's harder for us to understand. These are real spiritual influences, and there are opposing spiritual influences to Christ. There are spiritual influences that oppose God and his plan and his gospel and his hope to redeem the world. And so a lot of times, if not the majority of the time, these things that are being taught are not just ideologies. There is a spirit behind them that wants us to embrace rebellion against God. So the false teaching is not just an ideology that we have to be aware of. It's actually a spiritual thing that, is, that we're in danger of embracing. And when you think about the pervasive nature of secularism in, in the world that we're in right now, it's very important that we learn to discern between the spirits that we test the spirits and, and we make sure that we're not just believing everything that comes over the airways to us, but we actually see if it's coming from God or not. The other thing that, that, uh, that secularism would say we need to do is that we just need to confine religion to the private realm. In 2000, in the summer of 2000, I went on a mission trip with our choir over to Great Britain. We called it a mission trip, but it was really a concert tour. But when you call something a mission trip, it's easier for students to raise money. But uh, we didn't have any, we did not receive any kind of evangelistic training before we went out on this missions trip. And some of the days we were kind of sent out into the towns to just wander around. And I felt compelled because I raised money under the guise of a missions trip that I at least needed to try to do some kind of evangelism on the streets of Great Britain. And it's halfway around the world. If it goes bad, I don't have to worry about it. They're probably not going to put me in jail. You know, I don't have to worry about offending anybody because I'm going to be leaving soon. And so I did it. And I remember having these conversations about this idea 20 years ago. One of the guys, he said, you know, you Americans, you come over here and you share the gospel with us. And when you, when you share the gospel, you know, you think you have the right to come out into the street, into the public square and to preach your gospel to us. But we think it's, it's more of a private thing. It's just something, it's something that you do in your house and you don't try to force it on anyone else. 
And that was 20 years ago, and now this is actually a really pervasive idea around us today. Hey, that's fine. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Just don't force it on me. Keep it private. Keep it to yourself. The problem is no one can really do that, especially with the understanding that religion deals with the difficult questions of life. Because when you try to, when you try to separate those things, you quickly understand that pretty much every decision we make uh, you know, with doctrine and policy and all those things combined together, they are tied together. You, you cannot separate what you believe from what you do and what you try to regulate as a society. Because everything is built on the foundation of beliefs. But what secularism would tell us is that we need to agree that all religions are equally valid paths to God. That should sound familiar. But we also, we need to understand that religion is good to help you in your private life, but never argue for values in society that are based on your particular religious belief. But neither of these statements, as Pastor Keller says, hold water. For example, marriage. Right? If you're trying to keep religion private and you're trying to, to, uh, to keep your ideas about religion from affecting the public square, then, then you have to think about things like marriage. And this is the example that, that he uses in the book. So, but it, if you're talking about marriage, sorry, I'm trying to bounce around here and pull these ideas together. But if you're talking about marriage, you have to, you have to understand, are you talking about from our viewpoint and in our individualistic society and what marriage means and what it's for, the purpose of marriage in our individualistic society or the tr traditional family-based society? Because in the individual society, marriage then is all about me being happy. And if I'm not happy, that I need to be able to get out of my marriage as quickly as possible. And so then divorce laws as a state and as a country need to be easy because it's about me being happy. But if you're in a more traditional society, a family-based society, the, the family then is more about raising stable children. It's creating a safe and secure space for nurturing and raising children. So then the family is more about others than it is about me. And so then in that kind of society, divorce would be difficult. And so what we believe about everything is going to affect our viewpoint on things like Law. So we can't really separate the two ideas. 1 John chapter 4, verse 5. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Who is they? Well, probably specifically talking about these false prophets and false teachers. And these false teachers, the leaders of those who are opposed to Christianity, are from the world and they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. 
We, however, are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, probably talking specifically about himself and the leaders of the Christian church. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is why who we listen to is so important. This is why we've spent so much time over the years talking about input and influence and and all of the things that we allow our mind to be under the influence of. The 11 hours of media we consume per day does have a teaching behind it. It does have a philosophy that goes underneath the whole thing. It has a way of life that it's supporting. And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves under the teaching of those who are from the world. And we'll start to bring those ideas into the faith. And they don't work together. The elephant illustration is really good. If you haven't read the book, I really encourage you to go read chapter one and read the elephant illustration. I'll leave that for you. It's a good way to help understand how, how uh, arrogance affects our viewpoint. And, uh, but I'll just leave it at that because I want you to read the book because he says these things a lot better than I'm going to say them. The truth of the matter is, everyone has a set of exclusive beliefs. Even though we may, we, may, we may cling to the idea of relative truth, we still hold to a set of exclusive beliefs. And our hope is that others will embrace our beliefs. And we see this in our society all the time. There, there are beliefs that are being held by people with all kinds of agendas that they think need to be embraced by the whole society. And our job is to embrace all of everyone's ideas, which is an impossible idea, especially when you break that out to the idea of my truth, and now everyone has a different way of, a different set of exclusive beliefs. It's impossible to keep up with everybody's idea of what right and wrong is. It's impossible to live um, by those beliefs. But in the book, he, he actually starts to suggest a way that, there, that we can deal with the divisiveness of religion. He suggests, Pastor Keller suggests, that, that we instead look at Christianity, we look at the gospel of Christ, and though there are many things that are similar to, to a lot of other religious systems or thought systems and and ways that people try to live their lives, though though there are a lot of similarities, he says, instead of always looking for what's the same, let's look for what's different. And his argument is, since Christianity throughout history has been the most inclusive of all of the faiths, it has the best track record of, of bringing in the marginalized people of society and treating them with dignity. Since, since Christianity has the best track record of doing that, then we should look at what's different, what makes Christianity different, not the same. And so he uses Jesus' salvation, the gospel, and the resurrection as his basis for doing this. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. So this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. 
This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. So if you're wondering how we recognize if this teaching is from Christ, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's important for what, for what John was addressing in the early church because Gnosticism wasn't talking as much about Jesus coming in the flesh as he was coming in a spiritual, ideological kind of a way. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Do you acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Last Easter we talked a lot about how it's very uh, easy to prove historically the fact that Jesus Christ came and he, had, he lived and had a ministry. His resurrection is easy to prove also historically. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, came in the flesh or that it's just an idea? If we, if we agree on that, then we're in a good place to start. That Jesus Christ, this is interesting and an interesting thing to point out, that, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not that he was born. But for John to say that he has come is to actually insinuate the idea that he existed before in another way. That before he was this way and then he came in the flesh. He wasn't just born, he was born, we know that from from the story that we just celebrated at Christmas time. He was born, but he came in the flesh, which means he existed somewhere else first. But in every other religion, you see the start, the initiating person being just a human, not someone who existed for eternity before, but, but someone who just was born as a normal human being and then creates this religion and gets people to follow them. Other religions are born that way but not Christianity, not the gospel. Then we also have to deal with the purpose of Jesus' salvation. We have to deal with the origin of Jesus' salvation and the purpose of Jesus' salvation. This idea that Jesus would come in the flesh and the fact that Jesus was resurrected and when he was resurrected, he was resurrected with a new body, a redeemed, restored body. This is important because a lot of other religions see the purpose of salvation as liberating you from your flesh, eventually setting us free from our flesh or through different states of consciousness and escaping the, you know, the limitations of our flesh. But Christianity actually says the opposite, that, that God himself received a body, that, that God became flesh. And then at the resurrection, we don't see that the, the ultimate end of Christianity is to escape the flesh, but it's actually redemption. It's, it's the redemption of the flesh, that Jesus received this resurrected body. Others would hope to just escape it. And then lastly, the method of Jesus' salvation. All other religions require you to perform the truth of that religion to a certain standard to be able to be saved. 
whatever salvation looks like in these other religions. All other religions require you to earn with your acts, with the way you live your life, with the things you do, the deeds that you perform to earn your salvation through the life that you live. And if you do a good enough job, then God will bless you and you'll be saved, hopefully. But that's not what the gospel says at all. 1 John chapter 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is not that we loved God, but that God loved us and he sent his son to atone for our sins. It was a sacrifice before we could do anything to earn it. God comes in the flesh and then he pours out his life's blood for people who aren't virtuous, for people who aren't loving one another, for people who aren't living up to any kind of standard that he would expect, he pours out himself for them. Like we've said so many times, he lives the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in our place. This is the gospel, and this is why the gospel is so contrary to everything else in the world, because it's because of grace that we respond and live in a different way, not to try to earn grace. We aren't saved by performance. We're saved by grace. We're saved by the gift of God. We're saved by what Jesus did for us in our place. Religion would try to switch that and get us to start thinking that we're saved by our behaviors, by our action, that we just have to live the good Christian life, whatever that is. And, And if we live it good enough, then we'll be able to receive God's gift of salvation. And the world we live in doesn't help us because there's so much of that being taught that you just, you know, you can get whatever you want. You just got to go after it. You got to work after it. You got to get it. It's all there. You can, you, can, you can get it if you want. We cannot earn our salvation. It's given to us. Then we spend our lives working it out. We aren't saved because of our own virtue. We're saved because of God's love. So I think we just have to ask ourselves the question, which set of beliefs, this is what uh, the argument that uh, Pastor Keller makes, Which set of beliefs throughout history has led to the most inclusive behavior? If we take moralistic religion, which is what a lot of so-called Christians do, they, they, they take a moralistic religion and try to live that out. They don't live by grace, they live by their own righteous works. I'm not saying that in any kind of negative way, just how we see it. But if you take that into your life and you live your life by that, you'll start to feel like you're better than all of the people who are what we would call the heathens or the pagans. You know, you know, 
those who are outside, you know, we're better than them because we live. Look at, just look at the way I live my life. I'm better than they are. But then if you take secularism into your life and you live your life by that, you'll feel superior. This is what we hear all the time. You'll feel like you're better than all those ridiculous religious people who, who are so weak that they need a faith and something that they can't see to be able to survive. So you'll feel like you're better or more superior than that. But what happens when we take the gospel into the center of our lives is that we're humbled. When we take the gospel into our life and we live everything about our life, we, re we realize we are humbled. If it were not for the grace of Christ, we would have no hope. And throughout Christianity, those who are, who are living most like Christ walk in such humility. And that leads them and, and pushes them to serve to serve the people who don't believe what we believe. Not to condemn them, not to, not to destroy them, not to eliminate them from the surface of the earth, but, but to serve because of love, because we have been so loved, we respond by pouring out the same love, because our whole life is built on this man who loved people who didn't love him. Our whole life is built on Jesus who who though he was hanging on the cross paying the price for the sins of the people who were down on the ground hurling insults in them, he still loved them and he still offered forgiveness to them and he pleaded and interceded to the Father on their behalf for them to be forgiven. He knew, he was the creator, he was God, he knew, he knew everything that he needed to know at that moment he could have if he chose to hurled insults back. You guys are a bunch of idiots. Don't you see what you're doing? You're crucifying God. It's not going to end well for you. Good luck in hell. But instead, Jesus hanging on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They just, they just don't know. There's so much I think we can learn from Christ in that moment. If we started to see the people around us who though they may be righteously indignant against us as followers of Jesus Christ, to instead of coming back at them with, with just some other kind of righteous indignation in the gospel, we, we just... Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. And they don't. This is, why, this is why mercy and grace should fill our hearts and fill our lives for those who are lost around us because they've bought into a lie and they don't even know that it's a lie. And they're believing it with all of their hearts and it's leading them off a cliff. And we have everything we, we, they need to save them. One of the best parts in this chapter was Mark Lilla, who's not a Christian, and he wrote this when one of his students went to a, uh, a Billy Graham concert, or a Billy Graham thing, crusade. 
And when the student was going and he was talking about putting his faith in Jesus Christ, this was his response and his thinking. He said, I wanted, as a professor and, and someone who cared about the student, I wanted to cast doubt on the step that he was about to take, talking about following Christ. I wanted to cast doubt to help him see that there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. He goes on to say, doubt like faith has to be learned. It is a skill. But the curious thing about skepticism is that it, its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question. And I don't have one for myself. It's true. There are a lot of proselytizers for secularism, people trying to convince us to be skeptical towards Christianity and to walk and embrace secularism as a whole.